Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few days ago, a New York Times article appeared in my Twitter feed over and over again. And it took me a while to digest what I was seeing. A photo of one of the women I met while I was teaching in the Indiana women's prison. No longer wearing the drab khaki uniform, instead, Michelle was wearing a red shirt and a jean jacket, and she was the subject of the article. The article, From Prison to PhD, The Redemption and Rejection of Michelle Jones, outlined her time in prison, which she spent studying and in service to other offenders. While in prison, when we still offered educational opportunities to the incarcerated, Michelle earned her bachelor's and master's degrees. She then worked with a DePauw professor on researching the history of women's prisons in Indiana, uncovering a before now unknown fact. There were no prostitutes listed as inmates in the 19th century in prison because they had been sent out to Catholic laundry houses, similar to the Magdalene laundries in Ireland that have been recently discovered and decried as abusive places of slavery. Jones wrote about their findings and then published them in an academic journal winning the State Historical Society Award. I only taught for a year at the prison, part of an all-volunteer faculty trying to keep the women there engaged in college learning after the state defunded all college programs in the prisons. Michelle was my assistant for the class. Normally, I wouldn't talk about the women I worked with there, but her story is now splashed all over the New York Times and Time Magazine and every place on the internet. I didn't know why Michelle was in prison. The rules were that we weren't supposed to ask, and the only thing I knew was that she'd been there for a long time. She's an extraordinary woman, bright, organized, helpful, involved in helping others at the prison. As she neared the end of her sentence, Michelle applied to PhD programs to study the history of incarceration in the United States. She was accepted by Harvard and NYU. But the reason Michelle's story is all over now is because Harvard rescinded their offer, afraid of a public backlash for admitting an incredibly gifted student whose crime nearly three decades ago was awful. As a girl, 14 years old, she became pregnant. Her mother beat her savagely. She was removed from home, sent to group homes and foster homes. She lost custody of her son. 
When she regained custody of the toddler, she revisited the violence upon him that she had known. The details are murky, but the result was that the four-year-old died. Michelle had a mental breakdown and was hospitalized. Later, she was tried and received a 50-year sentence reduced to 20 years because of her extraordinary rehabilitation in prison. And here we are, 20 years of paying for an awful crime, 20 years of striving to make over her life, to be worthy to re-enter society. And just as she was about to begin an entirely new life, she was rejected again this time by Harvard. Fortunately, NYU has welcomed her into its program. I was thrilled to read the article about Michelle, even though she won't be going to Harvard. I was thrilled to read that at 45 years of age, she would get to keep her commitment, as she writes, that with the time I have left, I will live a redeemed life, one of service and value to others. And then I made the mistake one should never, ever, ever make when on Twitter. I read the comments. And they were awful. People furious that Michelle should have the chance to use her knowledge and experience of prison to study that system. People suggesting that she should be in prison forever. People certain that there could never, ever be forgiveness for her. Oh, beloved, how we long for punishment. How we love to judge others. Oh, Lord, how we love vengeance. After reading the comments, I went to my bookshelves looking for a book by one of my seminary professors, Miroslav Wolf. The title is Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. It's that last part of the title that resonates, giving and forgiving in a culture stripped of grace. We are so often a culture stripped of grace a culture where we want people to be punished more than we want rehabilitation, where we believe in three strikes and you're out, where we jail people for years then punish them when they get out by forcing them to check the felon box when applying for jobs, ensuring all good jobs are out of reach, where most states restrict the rights of ex-offenders to vote or serve on juries, some denying those rights forever. And of course, we don't just have to look to prisons for these lessons. Our political realm is rife with vengeful attacks and recriminations. The international aid system burdens poor countries with unpayable loans. Where does this leave us? Where does this leave we followers of Jesus, we who believe in a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. 
We're still a nation that proclaims itself as based on Judeo-Christian values, yet so little grace is to be found. And it makes me wonder, do we believe what we hear each Sunday? Do we believe what we read in scripture? Do we believe that God has offered us the most amazing gift of grace and forgiveness free of charge? Our sins entirely forgiven, not because we deserve it, but because that is the nature of our God. This Sunday, we return to questions of forgiveness just before Peter's question about how often we are to forgive. Jesus has made clear that we are to deal with anyone who harms us in our community in this way. We go to them privately. We care for them in community. We are never to give up on them. It's after that that Peter asks, well, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times. That's a generous vision, you have to admit. I mean, after all, how many of us imagine ourselves willing to forgive another when they've hurt us not once, not twice, but seven times? We're naturally suspicious of anyone who requires such serial forgiveness. Still, Jesus goes way beyond this. Not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And actually, Jesus' answer must have been so shocking that the scribes couldn't agree on the number. Some say 77, some say 70 times 7. But whatever he said, clearly we are to forgive over and over and over again. To illustrate what he's talking about, Jesus offers a parable. A servant goes to a king to whom he owes an extraordinary amount, equal to something like 15,000 years of labor. The servant is probably in charge of collecting taxes and rents from the other slaves lower on the hierarchy than himself. And along the way, he's probably skimmed a little bit off the top or a lot off the top, pocketing the tributes meant for the king, and now he has gotten himself into a chasm of unpayable debt. At first, the king acts the way we expect, severe in his judgment, exacting what is owed him. The servant then throws himself on the king's mercy. Have patience, I will pay everything. A ridiculous claim. But the king suddenly takes pity on this man. Not only does he not punish the servant, he erases the debt completely, not because the servant promises to repay it, but because the king has decided to get out of the accounting business. He has decided to get out of the debt business, the tit-for-tat business forever. He gives up his right to collect what is owed him. He effectively decides that mercy is more important than revenge, forgiveness more important than retribution. This unbelievable act of mercy frees the servant, frees the servant's family, 
frees those that the servant was planning to strong arm into giving even more so that he can repay his debt. The king, through forgiveness, changes the entire system. From a system of graft and retribution where people fear that they will get exactly what they deserve, we are suddenly plunged into an entirely new economy of grace where no one gets what they deserve, but instead are free, forgiven by an outrageously generous king. That's the kingdom of heaven. A cross-shaped economy of grace and mercy and forgiveness where the king refuses to be in the sin accounting business anymore. None of us will get what we deserve. Thanks be to God. Unfortunately, we know the ungrateful servant's response. He doesn't want to live in this new economy. Instead, only moments after receiving grace and mercy, he puts the hurt on a fellow servant who owes him a significant but much smaller amount. He decides to remain in a world of bookkeeping. Tit for tat, getting what we deserve. And because of that, the merciful king now pronounces a judgment suitable to that economy. The servant sentenced under the laws of an unforgiving country in which he need not live but has chosen for himself. And what about us? Do we trust that we live in a kingdom of grace and mercy that by virtue of our baptism we are forgiven of sins forever? Do we accept this mercy that we've done nothing to earn it and never can? Do we accept the ability to share this mercy with others to forgive as we have been forgiven? Now I know forgiveness is complicated and hard for we mere humans. It's not necessarily immediate. There is a reason that both the debtors and the story ask for patience. But are we willing to accept grace and mercy and living in a culture of grace? Or will we choose to stay in the worldly economy, a culture stripped of grace, insisting that everyone should get his or her just desserts, that punishment not rehabilitation or reconciliation is the goal or the highest good, that keeping track of one another's debts and trespasses is necessary. It's tempting. We know that world. We know how it works. But it's a cold and frightening place where we have to watch every step, always fearful we're going to go wrong. Or we could step into the kingdom that is already on offer, where everyone is a forgiven sinner, including you, including me. 
a forgiven sinner, accepting mercy and grace and passing it along to others. We can stay in the bookkeeping business, beloved, or we can enter a culture of grace, joining our king who has gotten out of the sin accounting business forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.